You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Good morning. Um, it, is, it is good to be with you this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Cole Kirby, and I have the joy and honor of serving here at Sojourn Montrose, both in the capacity of of being a neighborhood parish leader, so I'll reiterate what Reed said, that, that really we are a church that believes that church is a people to belong to rather than an event to attend. Um, that is especially pertinent as we go through Job and, and talk about suffering, um, because what you will see is that Job does not suffer in solitude, and he suffers well. Um, and and so, so solitude is, is really a dangerous thing, and so we would invite you to engage with the family of God through the neighborhood parish, um, if you're a visitor, I would encourage you to eat free food um, at, at Vision Sunday and, and hear more of what it looks like to get plugged in here. Um, and I, not only do I have the joy of serving as a parish leader here, but I'm currently transitioning into the role of being a, a church planting resident here at Sojourn Montrose, which, which really means that, that at Sojourn, we are a church committed to planting churches with the hope that the gospel of Jesus would not be an ignorable thing for the city of Houston as we faithfully plant neighborhood churches over the next X amount of years until Jesus comes back. And, and so I'm going to enter into a process of a, a few years getting trained, equipped, and by God's grace qualified um, to, to take a group of people into another part of Houston and, and establish another local congregation of God's global church. And so if you want to talk more about that, I'd love to engage with you in the gallery afterward and talk about um, what that looks like and find the time to sit down and, and really discuss that at more length and how you could potentially be involved with that. With that said, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to dive in. And, and when I say pray for us, I really mean I'm going to pray for me because I need it. And so I'm going to pray. Uh, join me. Lord, you're good. Um, even when the circumstances in our life and in the world around us, make it seem like you might not be. Uh, and you're just, even when um, your justice seems far from us. And, and you're merciful, even when your mercy seems far from us. And so I pray today, as we take a look at the text, that you would teach us what it means to suffer well, to suffer alongside one another, and ultimately to believe the truth um, that, that you are good and just in the midst of suffering and that, you're suff- and that the suffering that we experience is ultimately an act of mercy toward us um, and not an act of wrath toward us. And so would you teach us this morning and, and would you use my mouth for your glory? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we began a sermon series in the book of Job in which um, we went through the first two chapters and that Paul Ramsey was here preaching and he's a church planting resident um, up at Sojourn Heights, and and he faithfully went through the text. And what we saw in chapters 1 and 2 of Job are a few things. First and foremost, that Job was good and righteous, and and he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that is a key to remember as we look at his suffering, that he was good and righteous. Um, Two, we saw that Job was rich. Um, Really in every way that, that a man can be rich, Job was. He had all of the property, all of the livestock. He had a huge family. He had influence. He had health. And then we see in this conversation where where the Satan or the accuser 
that comes before God into the court, and, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? And so, so God, the God of the universe, the good God of the universe, the just God of the universe, really puts Job up before Satan, before the accuser, and says, have you seen this guy? And, and then a, a, a deal is made in which um, God gives full reign for, for Satan to, to rob Job of, of the things that he has in this earth. And we see that, that his family is killed, his livestock is killed. Um, and, and when that happens and he hears news of it, we see Job ripping his garments off and blessing the name of the Lord. And, and then his health is even attacked and he's covered from head to toe and these horrible sores. And there's this scene where Job is sitting in the ash, scraping his skin with broken pieces of pottery to hopefully find some relief. And, and even his wife comes to him and says, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? And he says, no, you speak as as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall not God give us both good and evil? Uh, and so we see that Job is good and righteous. We see that God is sovereign in allowing his suffering. And we see that Job is, is faithful to not curse God in the midst of it. What we also see is that Job is well aware that the suffering he's experienced has been brought upon him ultimately by God. And, and as we live in a world where we see all kinds of suffering and evil all around us, especially in the last two weeks um, when stateside we've seen uh, shouting and violence and rage and division. In in the nations we've seen uh, political turmoil and acts of terror. Um, and, And many of us in the room probably came in with our own personal burdens, be them financial, relational, emotional, physical. And so, so we can relate to, to the suffering that Job is experiencing. And, and ultimately, what I want to do today is, is to establish, one, as we look at, at Job's conversations with his friends, what it looks like to be a good friend um, for, for those who are suffering, and what it looks like to suffer well. Um, and ultimately, um, why we as Christians have hope in suffering and can believe that God's that suffering is God's mercy toward us. That when we experience suffering, that that is God's mercy toward us. So in chapter 2, where we left off last week, and in verse 11, Job is visited by three friends. And, and we, we really need to, to look at the three friends before we can really understand the context of chapters 9 and 10 where we're going to hang out. First thing that we need to know about Job's three friends is that they are very good friends and they love him a lot. Um, it says, when Job's three friends heard of the evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namathite. And don't ask me to point those out on a map. Um, but, but what we see are that Job's friends are good friends. One, they don't live where Job's live where Job lives, and they made it a point to travel, to be with him in the midst of his suffering. And then, and then for those of us who are identifying as Job's friends, where we have people that we're close with, and, and so we can learn close with who are suffering, and we can learn from Job's friends. Some of us in the room may say, actually, I feel a lot more like Job. I, I'm the one suffering. 
Well, what you'll notice is that Job's friends knew of his suffering. Um, This was not a secret that Job was suffering. So if you're suffering in the room and you're really frustrated that nobody's walking through that with you and, and nobody seems to care and nobody seems to love you, have you made it known? Have you engaged with your neighborhood parish and, and shared your burdens and your trials with them? Because I can promise you that, that Job's three friends didn't just magically say, hey, let's go see what Job's up to. I, I bet he's suffering. No, like they heard of this news. Because, because it was made known. And so Job's three, fr- three friends, they make an appointment together to come show him sympathy and comfort him. Verse 12, and when they saw him at a distance, they did not recognize him. <laughs> like this is a lens into how bad Job's situation is. That, that his suffering is so great that his personal appearance is disfigured. And his friends that loved him didn't even recognize him. It says, and they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. So before we go into chapters 3 through 8, where ultimately Job's friends get a bad reputation. We often refer to them as Job's foolish friends or or Job's arrogant friends, or, or really any negative attribute that you could say about friends. But when we look at this part of chapter 2, what we know is that Job's friends love him deeply. They're moved by his suffering in such a way that, that they tear their garments, they sprinkle ash on their heads, and, and then they sit with him in silence for a week. Have you ever loved someone so much that when you saw that they were suffering that you just sat with them in silence for a week? What we can learn from Job's friends is that when our friends are suffering, it is good to be slow to speak. When those around us are suffering, it is good to be slow to speak. And, and Job's friends do that. Why? Because they saw that his suffering was very great. And ultimately, they were so slow to speak that they allowed Job to break the silence. In chapter 3, Job is the first of the group that speaks up. And when he does, um, what he does is, is he laments his birth. He says words of hatred toward the day that he was born, and and he even wishes that he were a stillborn child, because the life that he's experiencing is so bad that he wishes he had never had to experience it at all. I know many of us in the room have been in places where that was our very thought. Like, why was I even born if this was the lot for me? If this was the suffering and loss and pain that I would experience, why was I ever born? And then after hearing this, his friend Eliphaz speaks up. And Eliphaz is going to speak, and then Job's going to speak, and then Bildad will speak. And Eliphaz and Bildad essentially say the same thing. They say, we know that God is good and just, and we know that your suffering is very great. So you must have done something to deserve God's wrath toward you. Like, this must be God's justice toward your sin. And so we know that you're saying you don't have sin, but what you need to do is repent. Uh, My favorite example of this is chapter 5, verse 8. Eliphaz says to Job, he says, As for me, Job, if I were you, I would seek God. Do you know how unhelpful that was for Job to hear? 
Like Eliphaz wasn't there when Job got the news from his servant that his livestock and children were dead. He wasn't there when he saw when Job fell to the ground, ripped his garments, and said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. He spoke out of assumption. One, assumption about the character of God, and two, the assumption about the character and nature of his friend. All right, when we walk with, through suffering with people, we don't need to fix it by assuming things about them and giving them unsolicited advice. As for me, I would seek God. Job, if I were you, I'd pray. I'd, I'd repent, Job. I'd find what I did wrong to deserve this. And, and you know, I'd ask God for mercy. And so then in, in chapter 6, Job responds, and, and essentially what he does is he upholds his character. Uh, he affirms his integrity and, and says, no, like this suffering is not about my sin. This suffering isn't a result of my sin. I, I know that I'm righteous and blameless before God. And, and then Bildad is going to speak up, and he's going to say essentially the same thing that Eliphaz said that Job should repent, that he should figure out what it is that he's done wrong, and he should repent. And, and so when we're walking with people through suffering, let us be slow to speak. Let us not make assumptions about what they should or have not done. And let us not make the assumption that, that their suffering must be God's wrath. Because we don't have to look at bad situations it's seemingly bad situation and know that God is sovereign over them and so and, and assume that that means that that is God acting in his justice and wrath. What we're going to find today is that, that when we experience suffering that God is acting in his mercy toward us. And, and that is true for Job as well. What we can learn from Job in, in chapters 3 through 8 is that in all of this he suffers well. He, he does a few things. He maintains that God is in control. Often in the midst of suffering, it is easy to be tempted to say or believe that like, if God is good and this is so bad, then like, God must have not done this. God must not be in control of this. This must be something else. And ultimately, that is weakening our view of God. Job maintains that, that ultimately this suffering is God's doing toward him. And in that, he doesn't curse God. He blesses God. And he maintains that he is not at fault. He knows that he is blameless and trusts this is not God's wrath toward him. And, and, and so really, Job is righteous and blameless, as we see in chapter 1, based on his repentance and faith. Like Job is faithful and has faith in God and is faithful to repent, so much that even he repents for the, the sins that his children may or may not have committed. And so he's made righteous by his faith and repentance and knows that because of that, this can't be God's wrath for him. Christian, do you know that when you are suffering, that you are, you are still righteous by your faith and repentance by the merit of Jesus and that your suffering is not God's wrath toward you because his wrath toward you is poured out on the cross? Like, do you trust your gospel identity enough that in the midst of suffering, you could say, I know that God is good. I know that he is doing this to me, but I know that this is not about my sin because my sin's been paid for. Because Job has never seen the cross, and he knows that. And, and so, so do you trust 
your gospel identity. Moreover, Job also trusts his personal holiness. Like, are, are you responding to your gospel identity in faithfulness, in repentance, and in holiness in such a way that when suffering befalls you, that, that you can say, I know this isn't about my behavior. I know this isn't just a consequence of my sin. Though there are consequences for our sin, and though the Lord does discipline us in our sin, that is not ultimately what suffering is about. And so chapter 8 ends by Bildad saying, in verse 20, he says, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evil doing. So Bildad is saying to Job, he's saying, Job, I know that you're saying you're blameless, but God doesn't reject a blameless man. And I'm looking at you, and you look like you've been rejected. You, you really seem like someone who's been rejected by God. And Job replies in chapter 9 and 10, and, and knowing beforehand that Job already knows that his character is righteous and blameless, he responds and he says, truly I know that is so. To Bildad, saying that God doesn't reject a blameless man. Now don't you think Job feels rejected? And yet he agrees with Bildad, who's essentially accusing him of sin. And so Job agrees that God does not reject a blameless man. So what we can infer from that is Job knows that this suffering is not God's rejection of him. Even though it really feels like it, even though it really seems like it, even though everyone else is telling him that it is, he knows that, that his suffering is not God's rejection of him. And then in chapters 9 and 10, we see Job kind of work through this process of how can my suffering be alleviated? How can it even be made sense of? The first idea Job has is that, is that maybe I can argue my case as a righteous man before God. He has that thought, but then he responds to that thought in verse 3 by saying, if one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him? And succeeded. So Job says, no, I'm probably not going to be able to make my case before God because who could contend with him? Like even me, a righteous man, I'm, I'm nothing compared to the holiness and the perfection and the sovereignty of God. Like why would he even entertain my defense? I, I, can't, I can't fix this. I can't convince God based on my merit to change his behavior to me. And, and then so he goes on about that and God's power and all of these things. And then he says, maybe I'll just beg for mercy. Maybe if I just begged for mercy that, that my suffering would be alleviated. He says in verse 15, he says, though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. So I must appeal to mercy, appeal for mercy to my accuser. But then he immediately dismisses it. And says, if I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. So Job's saying, I could beg for mercy, but I feel so hopeless. I feel so crushed. I feel like God is so relentless toward me that I can't even catch my breath to do so. And if I did and he responded, I probably wouldn't even believe it was him because I'm made so bitter by my suffering. And so just begging for mercy is ruled out by Job. 
And he goes on, and, and finally in verse 32, he says, For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him. So he, he goes back to this point that like there's this difference between the God of the universe and the man Job. And, and that God ultimately, like why would he even meet me in court? He says that we should come together in a trial. Then in verse 33, he says, There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both God and man. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. And so Job says, I'm not going to be able to argue my case and persuade God to change. I don't even think I can muster up the ability to beg for mercy, and I wouldn't believe that God would grant it to me anyway. Ultimately, what I need and don't have is some arbiter, someone who could who could lay his hand on both God and man and come between us and establish peace and establish understanding that my suffering would at least be made simple. But since I don't have that, I'm left terrified of God. Because his, his, the suffering he brings upon me seems so relentless, and I'm, I'm left terrified of God. In chapter 10, he'll go on, and, and he essentially decides, since I don't have that, since I don't have this arbiter that I need, I'm just going to utter my complaint. I'm just going to complain about my, my situation and my station to God. Um, and I think it's easier for us to look at that and say, oh, like, what an unholy response. But as, like, if we read through the scriptures, especially if we spend time in the Psalms, we'll see that God's people do this regularly. Psalm 55, David cries out and he says, um, at evening and at morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and I moan and he hears me. And he hears my voice and he saves me. And so, so we see Job similarly saying, I will give free utterance to my complaint. I'm going to let no, God know how much I'm suffering. And, and then he does that by reminding himself and God that God created him. And, and so Job's argument or plea, if you will, essentially comes down to, didn't you create me? If you created me, why do you despise me? Why do you keep coming against me? I don't understand. He says in, he says in verse 3, he says, does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Does it seem good to you that you would despise me, the man that you've created? And he says in verse 8, your hands have fashioned me and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Like we get this sense of, of deep confusion and longing that Job has in the midst of his suffering. I think a deep confusion and longing that all of us can identify with at one time or another when we're in the midst of suffering. Where we think, like, there's no way I'm going to persuade God to change this. Like, why would he listen? I'm just, I'm just a person. I feel like begging for mercy is hopeless. I wouldn't even believe it was him if he answered me. I feel so alone in this. I wish, I wish there was some arbiter that could come between us. And I don't understand how God could allow this to happen to the very people that he created. Verse 11 of chapter 10, he says, You clothed me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews. You've granted me life and steadfast love. And your care has preserved my spirit. 
So Job is not only reminding God, but seemingly reminding himself that God does love him. He's saying, you created me. You granted me life and steadfast love. Like, I know that your love is for me, God. I, I know that even your care for me has preserved my spirit in the midst of this suffering you've brought upon me. And, and, and we, see, we see Job very faithfully reminding himself that God, God must love him. I know that he loves me. I know that he loves me. He created me. I, I know that he loves me because he's preserved my spirit in the midst of this. And then he goes on, once again, reminding God that he's not guilty. And then, and then he finishes by saying, are not my days few? Like, am I not going to die soon? Then cease and leave me alone that I may find a little cheer. So Job's suffering is so great. And, and really his fear of God is so great that it seems so relentless that he has come to a place where he said, it would be better, God, if you would just leave me alone until I die. That, that I could find some cheer, that I could find something to rejoice in in the midst of everything that I've experienced. Just, would you please lay off before I, before I die? And, and, and he describes death as, as the land of darkness and deep shadow. So, so it's as if Job is saying, my life has been darkness and deep shadow. I know that death, based on what I've seen in life, will also be darkness and deep shadow. So could you just give me some solace for a minute before that happens? And, and so, so we can identify with that. Like there's a way in which that we all have probably felt these things. That, that the situation that we're dealing with, that the suffering that we're experiencing, that the pain that we're experiencing, that, that nobody else can fully understand, that, that it would be better if, if even God would just leave you alone and let you be because you, you feel so hopeless and in distress. And ultimately the climax of this passage Chapters 9 and 10 is, it's undoubtedly verses 33 through 35 of chapter 9. As Job cries out for the need of one to mediate between, between him and God in order to alleviate and make sense of his suffering. Job was formerly the figurehead of human suffering. Really in all of the Western world, we've, we've historically pointed to Job as that's what suffering looks like. Why? He was, he was a man rich and powerful in every way. He had all the possessions. He had a big family. Moreover, he was a good man, righteous and blameless. Like, he didn't deserve the suffering he experienced. And in what seems to be a scandalous act of God, he had it all stripped away. Left to, to sitting in the ashes, scraping his sores with broken pieces of pottery. He didn't do anything to deserve this. Yet he experienced it with as much grace as we could expect. Not joyfully, but also refraining from cursing God. But ultimately what Job had was this desire and perceived need of a mediating arbiter that would come between him and God, that could lay hand on both man and God. 
Church, that need has ultimately been fulfilled for us in Jesus Christ. Job hoped for something that he had not yet seen. Hear the words of Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. He says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. So, so Job had everything and had it all stripped away, and he didn't deserve it. However, the God of the universe has far more wealth, power, and righteousness than Job ever had. We're talking about the God that holds the cosmos in his hands and controls all things in his holiness. Even so, he forfeited his status and suffered the loss of his power. He gave up the very voice that called the stars by name and told the sun to make light and told the trees to bear fruit. He gave it up for the cry of an infant in the night. He gave up the title of divine ruler of all for the life of a vagabond and a washer of feet. And he took on the titles, the suffering servant, the man of sorrow. He suffered not only physically, as Job has, or emotionally, as Job has, or relationally, as Job has, but he suffered the loss of his godly status to be cursed, mocked, and punished in the way that we deserve. Job is no longer the figurehead for suffering. The figurehead of suffering is the Creator God, the Lord of all, and the man Jesus Christ. Suffering makes sense in light of Jesus. And we can now see, as people who have the opportunity to live on the other side of the cross from Job in history, we can see how that is a mercy of God toward us. The writers of the New Testament tell us that when we suffer, we actually should count it as a joyful blessing. Because we're partaking in the very suffering of Christ. That is to say that temporary physical and emotional suffering allows us to understand God's love for us in suffering the wrath of the Father as the Son for our sin on our behalf. When we suffer, we partake in the very character of God. Genesis 1 tells us that we are created as image bearers of God, and you bear the image of God when you suffer because our God is the one who suffers. He is the suffering servant. Job was a suffering servant. He is the man of sorrow. Job was a man of sorrow. And our trials and ailments allow us to know him, him being Jesus in a far more intimate way. As we get a glimpse into what he has experienced on our behalf, as he mediated between God the Father and men the sinner for us, that he would be able to lay his hand as the God-man on both God and man. Romans 5, 1-5 says, Therefore, we have been justified by, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, 
but we rejoice in our suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Though Job did not yet know the details of it, he knew that he was righteous in the eyes of the Lord. And this was because of his faith. God, in eternity past, had established that he himself would become the arbiter that Job longed for in chapter 9. And Paul tells us that for New Covenant Christians, and as New Covenant Christians, we have grace. And so we rejoice in the hope of God's glory. Meaning we rejoice in the hope that our salvation that we currently experience will one day be made complete as Jesus returns and invites us to the new heaven and the new earth where we get to experience the fullness of joy in God's fullness of glory. Our hope is in a promise that has already been fulfilled and will be fulfilled in Jesus and will be fully revealed in Jesus. We can rejoice in our sufferings because in the end they produce hope, which does not put us to shame. Hope doesn't put us to shame because God's promises are trustworthy. If any people in America knows that, it is Sojourn Montrose because Marshall has said probably 300 times in the last two years that what God decrees comes to pass. What God decrees comes to pass. His promises are trustworthy and He's promised us future glory. And so, without knowing it, in his suffering, Job is becoming more like the God he worships that will eventually suffer in his stead so that death will not be the darkness and deep shadow that he fears it will be. Death will rather be an entrance into God's glory and his sorrow will be turned to joy. And we have the luxury of living on the other side of the cross in history We as Christians have seen and known the arbiter, mediator, and judge whose name is Jesus. Job just hoped for him. We don't long for him desperately as Job did, but rather we trust in him desperately to comfort us, knowing that he has suffered all things and understands our current burdens. We can worship in the midst of trial and grief, knowing that Jesus is our sympathetic high priest, and that our suffering is only temporary because glory awaits. We can worship because in our suffering, we make the glory and character of our Lord Jesus the suffering servant known to the world around us. Christians, as you suffer well and walk well as good friends, brothers, and sisters with those who are suffering, we preach the very character of the God who saves. Because He saved through suffering. We can count suffering as joy because Christ suffered that we could enter into eternal joy. This doesn't mean that suffering will be fun and we should just put a happy face on and pretend like everything's okay. This doesn't mean that we should should rejoice by skipping and singing songs that, that we get to bear the emotional burdens and the relational burdens and the financial burdens that we bear. But it does mean that we can, we can take joy in feeling forsaken because Jesus cried out as one who was forsaken on the cross. 
We don't see a Jesus who just put a happy face on in the midst of suffering. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not, oh gee, I'm glad I get to do this. He wept at the tomb of his dead friend Lazarus. He didn't say, check this out, I'm about to raise him from the dead. No, he wept. He experienced the suffering. It was not a joyful occasion. His brow produced bloody sweat as he awaited his arrest, his torture, and his execution. But he endured it. He endured this suffering for the joy set before him. The joy set before him that he would be able to bring many sons to glory. That he would be able to bring many daughters to glory. And so suffering ultimately is God's mercy toward us as it reminds us of the hope we have in Christ, our mediator, the figurehead of our suffering. Suffering is God's mercy toward us because it reminds us that we cannot save ourselves, but rather we need the very sovereign God who ordained our suffering to deliver us from it. Suffering is God's mercy because glory awaits. And suffering allows for us to long for a better country. That is a heavenly one. Christian, if you are suffering in the room this morning, hear two things. One, it is not God's wrath. His wrath was poured out on the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, Jesus Christ, on the cross. The suffering you experience is God's mercy for you. That you would know that Jesus better. That you would trust in the work that he's done more. And that ultimately you would proclaim the gospel to the world as you suffer well. And, and the second thing which I said earlier is do not suffer in isolation. Can we sit with each other for days and days on end waiting for the suffering one Do we love each other well in that way? Will we make our suffering known that we could invite others into that and count it joy to suffer alongside one another as, as then as we even bear the burdens of others that we can ultimately be reminded of the burden Jesus bared for us on the cross? So, so suffering is, is not your fault, but the God who is sovereign over it and even who ordained it is the same God who will deliver you from it in the glory that awaits us. So let us be a people that as we suffer, we do so joyfully because we long for a better country. Because it gets a lot better than what we're trying to experience. And that's good news. So before we take communion, let me pray for us. And then, and then we'll partake in the sacrament. Lord, you're very good. You're very good that you would give us the blessing of suffering that we might know you more. Would you give us hearts that believe that because mine often doesn't? Would you, would you give us hearts that believe that ultimately the disaster we experience is your mercy toward us, that we might trust you more, know you more, and experience your eternal love for us? Because, because our hearts are so tempted to doubt that. Our hearts are so tempted to doubt that our suffering must be your hatred toward us, it must be your wrath toward us, and it must be our fault. Would you remind us of our gospel identity, that we are a people righteous and blameless before you based on our faith in the one who is righteous and blameless.
Lord, would you teach us what it means to suffer well as a family of God, that we would walk together in these things and point each other toward the good news. That not only did Christ suffer on our behalf, but he conquered death and resurrection. We can put all of our hands. Jesus, come quickly. We await your return and the glory that waits for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Communion is...